you shall not murder. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, it would be very easy for us to tune out, to think in our own terms of self-righteousness, that looking at these commandments are just an opportunity for me to check in and say, I've done it or I haven't done it, and that's the end. But Lord, there is so much you want to do in our hearts through these ten words that we've been looking at. There's so much freedom to be had because of what Christ has done. Yes, apart from Christ, the law is just a tutor to show us our need. Apart from Christ, and and even in Christ, the law is a mirror that reveals to us our desperate need for Christ. And Lord, it is a good thing for us today, on July 18th, to remember we have a desperate need for you. So let us not pass over this topic this morning. Let us examine our hearts. Let us do the hard work in our hearts as we're hearing and listening. Let us do so with anticipation that you will bring glorious freedom and glorious love into our hearts. Our payment has been paid. The consequence is dealt with. Justice has been satisfied in Christ. We thank you that we can come with that truth to this passage and confidently hear from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You shall not murder. That's the text. How you doing? If we could leave it at that, I think... We're probably good, right? We've gone through five commandments of which we've all, hopefully, even at first glance, have noticed, oh, yeah, no, I haven't put God first in everything. No, I have made idols in my heart and my mind of what I think God is really like. Oh, I have taken the name of the Lord on my lips and with my words in a vain way. I have not given his name the value and worth and reverence it deserves. I haven't honored the Sabbath the way I need to, the way I should, the way I know I should. And I certainly, at commandment number five, have disrespected and dishonored my parents time and time again. But we come to number six, and our immediate temptation is to say, what a relief. Lower the bar a little bit, Lord. This sounds really good. This sounds like smooth sailing. You shall not murder. I know there are people in society that murder. I know that murder is really bad, but I know that I would never do something so despicable. Right? Wrong. Well, let's deal with the fact at first that murder is literally what God is talking about here. It is not the case that we should just breeze over the topic of ending a person's life wrongfully because that is directly and first and foremost what is being dealt with here, right? And as we take God's view on life and his love for it as the creator of it and the sustainer of it, we also need to take a moment to look at the view of murder in our society. 
like many of us who will come to this passage and say at first glance, yeah, I'm pretty good on this one. Most of society would say, yeah, murder is bad. I mean, for centuries, it's been a law in all sorts of different cultures. You shouldn't kill that other person. It, it just makes sense, right? And if you ask somebody, why is murder wrong? It would be easy enough to just simply say, well, uh, because it is, right? Why does there need to be that question? Murder is just flat out wrong. So if it's so obviously wrong, then why is it still such a problem? Why is it such an issue for us in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world? Why is it that people in their anger and their rage and their hatred decide the only thing I could do to make things right is end this other person's life? The fact is, is that the issue at the heart of the person who is willing to go to such great lengths is the same issue in our hearts as well. And we see that not only in the most obvious examples of breaking this tent, this sixth commandment, but we all also see it in subtle ways. Because God's view of life is that it is precious that he has designed it, that it is good. It is something that he wants to have happen in the world that he's created. He wants people to go on living. And yet, as we think of homicide and suicide, even infanticide and senicide, killing of, for all sorts of different reasons, that in our society, we have actually put a sort of softening on top of. I don't need to sit here and tell you that abortion is wrong. Abortion is murder. Ending life breaks this commandment at whatever stage that life is in. But beyond that, at the other side of life, to say that a person's quality of life is so diminished that we ought to help them along and even encourage them to just say, hey, there's no hope, you're done. Why don't you take this drug and end it all? To look at somebody especially and to say, you're only going to become a burden to society. You're only going to become a burden to your family after a certain age. So why not end all of this right now? Well, our simple answer to that question of why murder is wrong, of, of just saying, well, why, why wouldn't it be wrong? Suddenly that answer doesn't suffice when we realize how widespread murder has become in our society. It's not enough to just say, hey, look, it's, we all know that it's wrong, when people are all across our country saying, actually, there is so much right to this. So that's our setting that we find ourselves in. And I imagine that in those topics, you probably are thinking, yeah, we have some real issues societally. We need to address that, don't we? But Christians have a unique platform for addressing the sin in the culture because so often we find that sin in our own hearts, don't we? And the first place we need to deal with sin is with ourselves. What did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? Before you take the what out of your brother's eye? The speck out of your brother's eye? Get rid of the speck in your own eye? Was that it? What did he say? 
interactive moment. Get the log out of your own eye so that you may see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In some ways, though, the people of God can come up with some of the most offensive sin because they know the person who has paid for all that sin. Because they know that I owe everything to Christ. And so when I choose to live contrary to who he is, as I see clearly in the Ten Commandments, there is a despicableness of our sin that we so often miss because we see in the culture what we think is far worse. In the Hebrew for this verse, there are two words, lo ratzach, which literally just translates to no killing. It sounds like a sign you would see outside of a public swimming pool, right? No running, no splashing, no music, no killing, right? Just a list of of very blunt and obvious things that shouldn't happen. Now, as you, perhaps in your translation, I know the ESV translates this to you shall not murder, and I think that's accurate here. Because there are many words in the Hebrew language that are used for killing. And so this is not talking about an accidental killing. Or it's certainly not talking about killing in war times as following orders. And most certainly, especially because we'll see in a moment, that capital punishment is something that the Old Testament actually enforces as a good thing for society. This cannot be talking about a situation of satisfying justice. So what is this talking about? It's just talking about the plain old, obvious, wrongful ending of life for selfish reasons. This could be the shortest sermon ever because we could just end it right there in one sense, couldn't we? Go out this week, and as you're following Christ, try not to murder anybody. You would be like, that is the easiest application. I got this. Why can't last week's sermon be like this? Or next week? Why can't everything just be that simple? I mean, all of the things that we've covered thus far about literal murder is true. But it is not enough that God see our outward expressions as lining up with his, but that our inward issues in our hearts would as well line up with his heart. You know this passage, perhaps, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Hear it again. Hear it afresh, I hope, this morning. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Suddenly looking at the author of the law that we see here before us, we see that there is a concern that goes much deeper than simply what we do outwardly. But that in our hearts, and even and especially in our words, we need to be cautious about killing, about ending life in thought and in word. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in England from the last century, said that the reason Jesus is talking about uh, what people have heard have said of old, you shall not murder, and the second part, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Lloyd-Jones says that the Pharisees at that point of Jesus' day had reduced the law down to its immediate and human repercussions and removing the spirit of the law. Now, just imagine for a second, because, boy, thought police, right, today? Yeah, 
Like many of us are like terrified of this idea. <laughs> yeah, on Facebook, social media, and all that kind of stuff. What if somehow the government was able to see inside your heart, see your angry intentions? Would any of us be free to worship on Sunday morning? Or would we all be locked up? Have, oh, boy, yeah. There was a movie. I'm sorry. It's coming to mind now. This is bad. There was a movie in the early 2000s called Minority Report. Did you ever see it? It's an interesting concept. I don't know if it's a good movie to recommend. This is why I'm saying this is a bad idea. But it's an interesting concept in that this, this police force in the future was able to call people out on crimes that they hadn't even committed yet. And so throughout the movie, this guy's trying to escape from the police that he was a part of, and, but he doesn't know what kind of tr- crime he's going to commit, and he doesn't even want to do anything wrong. But in the end, oh, I'm going to spoil it for you, and then you won't even want to watch it anyway. In the end, he finds out why, and he's ready to totally go in and lean in and commit the crime. It would be terrifying for us to know that someone else had access to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and in our minds. Awful. Can you imagine that we get so terrified of what people might do if they knew what we think and feel, and yet we are so nonchalant about the fact that God knows all things. We take that as a simple Sunday school truth that just kind of rolls off with all the other attributes of God that we know. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. He knows all things. Not a big deal. That's a huge deal. Especially if we come to this law and we say it means more than just your outward expression. And so this law calls us to resist hatred and harm towards anyone and positively to act and speak with love to everyone. Because we know that God giving these laws is not just simply saying, the most important thing you need to know about me is what I don't do, right? That's not what he's getting at. There's got to be this deeper issue here that do not murder, do not take away someone's life is coming from the one who is the giver of all life, who is called life sacred and good. In Genesis 9, verse 6, he brings this up. He says that if anyone murders someone else, if anyone takes the life of someone else, his life should be taken as well. In Nehemiah 9, verse 6, he says that God has created everything. He's created the earth and everything that's in it. He's created the heavens and everything that's in it, and the sea and all that's in it. And he preserves all of them. Do you realize that to physically murder someone is to, in one sense, interrupt the good work of God in preserving that life. And when we, with our thoughts and our words, disobey this commandment, we are as well acting from the same motive. The the problem with our, our connecting our anger and our hatred in our hearts to physical murder is not a matter of saying, i got to watch out for it every day. But it is a matter of recognizing in our hearts that these two things, the thought and the words, are not as far away from the action as we act like they are. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his what? own image. Commitments 6 all the way through the 10th are all in the negative. 
God has made man in his image. He's setting up the parameters for how we have to deal with one another. And he puts them all in the negative because, again, as I'm saying again yet, (laughs) that uh, Alec Mateer points out that our hearts need to hear a negative command so that we might fight the tide of our evil intentions. And if you've ever been out in the tide, I, I remember one time as a kid, um, at, at some beach for some ocean. I don't, I don't remember exactly the details of where I was, but I just remember slowly drifting out further and further, sitting in a little floaty device thingy, and at one point saying, okay, I'm ready to go back in, and going to put my foot down and going, oh my goodness, I don't know where the bottom is. Just that moment of terror, and the terror came because I had no idea I was drifting further and further out. I had no idea that in such a short time I would be so far away from the beach and so in danger of drowning. I was okay, by the way, if you were worried. I'm here. (laughs) But we don't realize this slow drift that's going on in our hearts, and we need to deal with that. And so that's why this commandment, like the last six or the last five, are all in the negative. But again, this is also deeper than just a restriction. He's not simply saying, whatever you do, make sure you don't murder. Make sure you don't uh, say you fool. Make sure that you don't do these kinds of things. Just leave it at that. So the Bible doesn't leave us any room to say that God thinks that there's a gray area with how we interact with people. Again, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And then I love how Keith Green summarizes the second one. He says, love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. That is the heart of these commandments. And at this one, it's not just a matter of saying, you know what, I could be really obedient to number six if I just make sure that I just keep my head down and don't do anything with anyone else. And just leave to myself, leave well enough alone, I'll be fine. Can't do that. We have to interact with people. And we cannot simply leave it at the baseline of interaction and say, I didn't want to ask them a question about their lives. I didn't want to try to share the gospel with them because I didn't want to accidentally murder them in my heart. So I just thought I would just leave that all behind anyhow. There's a positive element to this that we have to address, and it is a call to love. And that call to love is what's rejected when we act out in anger. As Jesus said, if you are angry in your heart wrongfully, you've already committed murder. You've not loved, you've rejected love, and you've embraced hatred that brings about death. Look with me, I'll ask you to turn to this in your Bibles, in Luke 10 Verses 25 through 37. This is a familiar passage, perhaps, too. Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 25 through 37. So that we can get a picture of what God is calling us to in this commandment from Jesus himself. I've already mentioned verses 25 through 29 multiple times now. So we'll jump up, sorry, to verse 29 instead. So this lawyer who was asking what, how, am I, how, how can I obey the commandments? How am I supposed to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord, love people. And then he wants to justify himself. So he says to Jesus in verse 29, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Notice here in this moment, did they kill him? No. But... 
if no one had interacted, these who robbed this man would be guilty of murder. Got it? Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Good grief, good Samaritan, give it a rest. You're making us look bad. Leave it at that. Put him on the animal, take him into town, let him be somebody else's problem. He continues in verse 35. The next day, oh my goodness, the next day this guy was helping him out for so long. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Okay, that's really nice, good Samaritan. This is a good cutoff point. No, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan even leaves this command to love his neighbor open for further love. If there's anything else that he needs, let me know and I'll take care of it. So then Jesus asks the obvious question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And you can hear the eye roll, can't you? The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Was Jesus saying, go find a guy who's beaten half to death, take him to an inn, take care of... Not literally. But he's giving us a clear picture of what love your neighbor really means. What it really means to love life into another human being, created in the image of God, valuable before him. There's no room for us in this parable to find a cutoff point and say, what's the bare minimum I could do? Because I liked when the commandment was just don't kill anyone, that it was just very clear and simple. But the depth of this command, now that we're in Christ, expands beyond that. and says the expectation is not simply just don't kill or just don't kill with your words or with your thoughts, but go to the other extreme and be pro-life to the max. Alistair Begg says of this, that being pro-life must be more than a flippant statement on our bumper sticker or a way to cast our vote. It must be a studied position we hold with all the energy of our convictions. And he says, this is hard work. It's not enough to just simply say, I'm against homicide, I'm against abortion, I'm against assisted suicide. It's not enough to just say those things. Although we live in a culture that would say, hey, that's enough. Because the culture that we live in wants to take anger and let it become an opportunity for us to justify ourselves for whatever position that we're in. And say, if I can express outrage towards the opposite side of where I stand, then I've done my duty. I've done my job to make things right. What God is calling us to is far bigger than that. Think again about this word ratzak, meaning not to kill, lo ratzak in this verse. And this word literally means to burn with anger. Burning with anger. Love is the call that God is bringing to us this morning to put out the fire of anger in our hearts. 
to find a means of giving and not taking life. Pro-life starts with us dealing with the fire of our hearts, taking the log out of our eyes before looking at those who would say, let's go ahead and end the life of an unborn baby for our convenience. That is despicable. But there's something despicable in our hearts as well that we need to deal with. And that's the starting point for our ability to testify to the God of love. Because in my heart, what I need to realize is that anger is the way that my heart finds satisfaction. And it happens in an everyday situation. There was a time where we were traveling recently, and we were in a hotel, went into the elevator, and this other guy comes in the elevator too, which I'm usually excited about. I'm like, maybe conversations will happen. And I was kind of ready for a second, like, this could be good. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to share Christ with them. I didn't, because I'm a loser. (laughs) But really, the excuse that I would give is this, because he came in with his cell phone out, blaring his music like he was driving down the road, walking through the hotel and into the elevator with his music playing as loud as he liked. And I just stood there and I went, in my heart, how dare you? Do you even realize that I am right here? And that I don't care to listen to whatever you're listening to, even if it were my favorite song in the world. I am offended by the fact that you care so little for me. And what did I do? I'm going to get back at him. I didn't do anything to get back at him. But in my sinful heart, I basically just said, I don't need to obey God. This guy's hurt me. It's a little thing. But I've told that story like a handful of times since that happened. And just just as an example of like how people can be so rude, and I'm missing the fact until I actually come to the Ten Commandments, and I look at number six and realize I'm a murderer at heart. And my telling of the stories of people who have so wronged me and so angered me is an outward expression of my desire to be satisfied by my own sense of justice. And for other people to go, yeah, what a jerk. Right? We all have these stories, and so we all have an anger problem. And if I asked you this morning if you have an anger problem, and you said yes, you would be right, and if you said no, you would be wrong. Because then I would be pressing you and you're saying, are you sure you don't have an anger problem? I might start tapping you on the shoulder to see if you have an anger problem, and guess what? I, I promise you I could annoy every single one of you if I really tried. If, I mean, maybe, it's, maybe you're just saying it's not that hard, Nick. You're doing it right now. But... We could find a way to get on your nerves because you're human. We all have an anger problem. And that anger problem comes from the fact that we've made an idol in our hearts of our own emotions. And we've said, if I can satisfy my rage, I will feel better. Have you heard about rage rooms? Kind of, yeah. They're these old, abandoned, nasty warehouses that you go to. And there'll be old furniture and old printers and old TVs and old hardware and old whatever. And you go in there, you put on a mask, like a helmet with a, 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 oh, come on, somebody help me real quick. Face shield, shield, thank you. Words are hard. (laughs) You put that on and they put a baseball bat in your hands and you know where this is going. I know some of you are thinking, that sounds amazing. I like the way the sermon's going. If that's the solution here... Boy, I would love to express my anger positively. 
not hurting anybody, just hurting those old appliances that I could find in one of these rage rooms. Did you know that in the past few years, it's not a new phenomenon, but there are already 60 of these places in the country. 60 places you could go to to get your anger out, to satisfy your anger, your sense of longing for justice or for satisfaction or for comfort, to express that anger. If you could just go home and punch a pillow, that's not enough. I'm going to give somebody 30 bucks, and they're going to let me run around for 10 minutes and smash a bunch of things like a little child. I know some of you still think it sounds fun. Note, bad sermon illustration. If you don't end up agreeing with me in the end, it didn't work out. I'm going to tell you this, though, in love, because I love you all. Our best solution for dealing with our anger is not a matter of seeing what we can destroy to make ourselves feel better. And it's not enough to just say, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I'm just going to go to my room. I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to grab my pillow, and I'm going to scream into it as hard as I can. That's not going to satisfy us. That's not ever going to be enough. It's going to become like a drug, and it's going to be a matter of every time I get angry, I need to get to my room, and i got to put my face in the pillow. God wants more for us than to look to temporary satisfactions. Because the truth is, is that if you start saying, you know what, I'm going to find out where these rage rooms are, and I'm going to find it, and I'm going to go there every Friday, Friday's not going to be enough. It's going to be every other day. It's going to be, I'm going to start going to thrift shops and grab an old junk and make one in my backyard. Because anger will, I know, I'm not trying to give you more ideas, okay? you got to trust me on this. It's not a good idea because what we're doing in all of that is fanning that flame of anger in our hearts, making it bigger. Sending it out of control is not the solution. And this fanning the flame, those ways that we we console ourselves and tell us if we could just go and express this are actually becoming an expression of our anger at God. Do you know that? No, I'm not angry at God. I'm angry at this person. No, I'm not angry at that person. I'm even better than that. I'm just angry about the situation. No, I have righteous anger. If you figure out what righteous anger really is, please come tell me. Or at least how to express it. Because righteous anger is a thing. Jesus is righteously angry at sin. And we should be angry at our sin too. We should be angry that evil things happen in the world. God is calling us against our sinful tendencies to not create further destruction in our response to our anger, but to actually do things that promote life and love. And that is what this commandment frees us to. Freedom to love life. I know that sounds like such a me-centered title, doesn't it? But I decided to keep it anyway. Because this is not a, a matter of saying, if you could get your anger in check, you will be so happy and you will have your best life now. That's not what we're getting at. What we're saying in our freedom to love life is we are free to love the action that God does, life, the thing that God has created, to love the life of our neighbor, to love the life of our children, of our spouses, of our mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody, to look into the eyes of a complete stranger and say, you were made in the image of God 
It's an incredible thing. And yet anger, like the rest of our sinful expressions, have tarnished that image, have left us separate from God. And so it is hard for us to see goodness in somebody because there isn't any. We don't have any goodness in and of ourselves. We can't look at this passage and say, all I have to do is figure out where that that fingerprint of God's goodness is in that person's life and then just let that explode into my perspective. You will be dissatisfied. You will be disappointed. There's no one who is righteous, not even one. And none of us who have trouble with loving our brother can say that we love God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John the Apostle, if you might remember this from a few months back, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's a simple matter. If you can't love people, how can you say you love God? And scripture is clear that we cannot be in a gray area of just indifference to God. Either we love him and we're his people, or we hate him and we are his enemies. Romans chapter 1, a passage we go to all the time to point to the culture and say, see how messed up they are? And see how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness? Do you ever put yourself in that list? Because apart from Christ, you are unrighteous. Listen to what happens to those that God gives over in Romans 1, 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder. Pause right there. They are full of murder. Where does murder start? In the heart. With anger that turns into hatred. Anger that fans a flame. And then hatred that, you know, the Hebrew, I'm not on the right page for this. The Hebrew talks about hatred as being something delivered towards an enemy. So our anger flames up in our hearts and it finds its target in a person through hatred, through making them an enemy. They're full of these things, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. (laughs) Hating God means that you deserve to die. Having a heart full of murder means you deserve to die. Though they know that this is true, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Boy, good thing Christians don't do that, right? No, because we can gather around and talk all sorts of politicians that we can't stand what they're doing. And we'd love to get in a circle right now and just talk about how messed up our country is and point fingers and fan the flame of anger in our hearts. On January 6th, most of us, I imagine, looked at the terrible thing that happened and said, I mean, I'm not happy with the election. Perhaps if you weren't happy with the election, he said, I'm not happy with it, but I can't imagine going that far. That, those people who broke into the Capitol and vandalized and did all these terrible things, I would never. Again, the gap between anger and hatred in our hearts and acting on it is never as big as we think it is. Enters Christ, the lawgiver, the fulfiller of the law, the one who perfectly obeyed the simple commandment, you shall not kill, you shall not murder. He is the one who was murdered for our sake, for the sake of murderers, 
He comes in with the perfect remedy, the perfect response of obedience by not taking life, but by laying his life down to give it to all who will believe. Conquering death, conquering murder, making it no longer a thing. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again and then came back and reappeared to his disciples, can you imagine what would have happened if the Romans and the Pharisees and the crowds all gathered together and said, it didn't work the first time, let's take him out again? What would have happened? Can't kill him. He's raised to life. And that's what he's given to us. We have perfect, eternal, permanent life in Christ Because he hates murder. There's a right place to hate. There's a right sense of anger against things that go against the good life that God has tried to create. And so we ought to put to death or murder our own sin. The only reason we can do that is because Christ has died in our place. Because he has amazingly taken the place of us evildoers. Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for everybody who obeyed commandment number 6. No. He died for the ungodly. Those who do the opposite of God. God, the giver and preserver of life. Ungodly take life. They destroy. They break down life. That is what we have done in our sin. And yet Christ has died. And he has not only done that, but he has also loved us perfectly. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you know Jesus did that even on the cross? What did he say of those who were crucifying him? Father, say it, what is it? Forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Why should we do this? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. God's perfect Son, Jesus. The God who makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Nope. Sorry, not even commandment number six. That's the one I was hoping for. If I was going to get a 100% on one of these 10, I can't do it. You must be perfect. And in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, you are. You are righteous before him. Do you sin still? Yeah, we're still here. But before God, we are accepted in the beloved. And Christ's righteousness, his perfection is credited to our account, our empty, bankrupt account. This is not something we can do. He had to do it for us. He had to become the substitute and credit us with his perfection because we have fallen so short of it. And so because he's done that, Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something, the tiniest thing of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I'm ready to forgive anybody of anything. Do you have anger in your heart right now that you're directing towards someone in a hateful way, even in your thoughts, maybe toward in your words? Could a glance at Christ diffuse the fire of rage in your heart this morning? 
could realizing the extent that he has gone to to make you his be enough? And if it's not enough, what more could God do? What else could we hope in but the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? So, because he's done this, we are called to walk in the freedom of this commandment, in the freedom of our life in Christ as life givers, not life takers. Look again at Matthew chapter 5. I know we've been bouncing around quite a bit. So here from Matthew chapter 5 again, verses 23 through 26. The second part of this commandment regarding the heart. If you're even angry at your brother in your heart, you are guilty and deserving of hellfire, he says. In Matthew 25, 23, he goes on. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Let me just say this. No, I'll finish reading. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Do you realize the importance of examining our hearts with this matter. Because Jesus, in just to rush to an application of this, passage, of this verse here in Matthew 5, Jesus is telling us in one degree that you shouldn't even come to church if you've got anger in your heart towards somebody that's been unresolved. If you haven't done everything that you could do to make things right in that relationship, don't come to church yet. He says, leave your gift at the altar. Go and do everything you can to be reconciled with that person. Why is this so important? Why is it so important for us to deal with the anger in our hearts even before worshiping? It's because our anger burning against another person says something very terrible about our perspective of God. How can we hold anger in our hearts when the wrath of God has been satisfied at the cross for you? That is the despicable thing. It's something that Christ wants to kill in our lives and give us true life in him, a life of love and a life of reconciliation and peace-seeking. Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Listen, I'm not telling you right now, maybe you do need to, and it will be fine. I'm not telling you that you have to get up and leave right now in the middle of the service and go get reconciled. Maybe you do. But maybe it's just a matter in your heart to truly forgive someone, to truly douse that fire of anger with the living water of Christ's word today so that you might worship in spirit and in truth. Our love constantly needs to hit the refresh button. This was a reminder for me yesterday as the girls came in from working in the garden and I feel like Nora, every time she goes outside, has to bring me another flower. And so she brought me a black-eyed Susan. And that thing was dead in like an hour. It sat on my desk as I was writing the sermon. And it was a reminder to me. And I'm like, i got to remember that sermon illustration. But the reason I think it's so precious that my four-year-old always comes in and brings me a flower is that it's this reminder of renewal of love. Because once that flower is plucked, it's just going to die in no time. We need to refresh our love for each other. 
and for even those in the world, even our enemies, because it's easy to love people in this room, right? Because we all agree and get along with everything. (laughs) I say that facetiously, but we actually do get along pretty well. I mean, I'm really thankful for that. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his transforming work in us to make us into that good Samaritan who doesn't just simply say, what's the least I can do and be obedient for this guy right now? But actually says, I'm going to take him, I'm going to bring him in here, and then I'm going to tell the guy who's caring for him, let me know what else he needs. Because my debt to another person never ends. Because Christ has taken my debt that I owe him. So, here's what I want to ask you to do this week. I want you to take five minutes sometime, maybe today, And I want you to pray for someone that you would not likely spend time praying for. And I want you to not just pray for them generically, but I want you to pray for them as if you were praying for yourself. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself with the concern that you have for your issues. Apply that to them. And let that be a transforming moment for you. And one step closer to the heart of Christ. Seeing people the way that Christ sees them, as those in need of a greater love than what this world can offer. We can do that. We can offer that kind of love. Our life is meant to be a testimony to a greater love than this world has to offer because we know the author of life and the king of love. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we examine our hearts, even right now, if there are active issues, active flames that we need to douse of anger in our hearts, that you would not only point, that, point us to them, because we, don't, we can't do enough. We, can't, we cannot deal with the sin in our hearts the way we ought to. I believe that's why Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Thank you, Lord, that life has been purchased for us by Christ. It has been guaranteed. It has been proven by his resurrection. It has been applied by the Holy Spirit. And our call this morning to freedom is outside of anger, outside of hatred, outside of murder, to something greater, to you and to testifying to the world around us. Help us to walk in obedience to this by your Spirit, not trusting ourselves but longing to please you and to live a life in light of the fact that death no longer has any reign in my life. Death is indeed arrested, Lord. Christ has given us a new life together. Help us to testify to that goodness today in Jesus' name.